Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. I have just a couple of announcements before we get to the main subject of today's episode. And the first one is I'd like to welcome all the new subscribers to the podcast and to my email newsletter. I wrote an article last week called Are the U.S. and NATO as Prepared for Economic War as Russia, China, and India? And it seems to have really struck a chord. It, it went viral, was reprinted by some high-profile websites, and also led to my appearance on Steve Bannon's War Room. And I know some of you first learned about the podcast from there. So welcome to everybody. We do have a lot to cover here. And even since I wrote that article, uh, a few developments have occurred which I will briefly mention, and I'm also going to have Tom Luongo back on the podcast for Wednesday's episode. Tom was last with us before the Ukraine invasion, and we were talking about some of the uh, geopolitical maneuvering that was going on, and he specializes in marrying those things to financial markets and the world economy. So that should be a great episode. And also, I just want to remind you that within the next couple of weeks, I will be launching a Patreon for the podcast and website and hope that you'll be able to sign up and become a supporter. I'll have a lot of extra goodies for paid subscribers. I'm just finishing up a contract project that I should have done within the next week to 10 days, and then I'll be able to get that up and running. So the main topic I wanted to cover today was propaganda, really on all sides. The title of the episode is The Fog of War Propaganda Around Ukraine. And of course, when a war breaks out, both sides have their own propaganda. And while you may be inclined to think of the two sides as Russia and Ukraine, the country, I really consider this a proxy war between the United States and Russia, a war they've been waging for most of this century. And depending how you take the first admissions of countries east of Germany into NATO, then possibly even as, as early as the late 90s. But I probably don't have to make 
a case to most listeners of this podcast that it's almost impossible to believe anything that is being told to the U.S. public by their own media. It's just been over the top. And just the fact that you cannot go to any website, NBC News, ABC News, CBS, CNN, even Fox News was supposed to be some kind of a uh, alternative to the so-called liberal media. I mean, you have to scroll down on all their websites to find any news besides Ukraine. Apparently, nothing is happening in this country that any U.S. citizen should care about. That's really bizarre. And the fact that it doesn't hit more people as bizarre is somewhat discouraging. Now, I have tried to kind of break the spell by offering another perspective on this conflict. I certainly don't see Russia's invasion as completely unprovoked as it's been portrayed in the media. At the same time, it's quite another question on whether the invasion was justified. And that really depends on what standards you're using, who the aggressor in this conflict is. I'm a libertarian, so I consider my local town zoning board an act of aggression, but not everybody shares my view. And it's also important to remember that while the U.S. media is pretty much lying about everything all the time, that doesn't mean that the Russian government isn't also lying about at least some of the things some of the time. And it becomes very hard to try and figure out what's really going on. Can we know anything about what's going on in this conflict? And this is all assuming that we should care about this conflict. Something that, you know, is another question that's just not even on the table. Why does America care about this? Now, the real answer is because the U.S. government really started this war, even if they didn't fire the first shot. That's why the government cares, and they've used the media to help convince most of the American public that they should care, to the point where they should, to a large extent, sacrifice their standard of living so that the United States can maintain sanctions on Russia. But the way I try to analyze these events, and I'm not saying that it's a perfect method or it yields perfect results— is I try to look for every source I can find on the information. What are both sides saying? Which side's account seems the most internally consistent? And which one in the end seems the most plausible? And this is where the U.S. media's narrative seems the weakest to me. And I'll just give an example. And that is the general story that Russia is targeting civilians and waging the kind of total war that I've been led to believe they led in Chechnya. If I haven't gone back to research the veracity of those claims, but I assume them at the moment to be true. But in any case, the first thing that jumps out at me about the war on civilians narrative is the lack of consistency with the number of deaths reported. Because if the Russian military were targeting civilians the way we're led to believe, we should be seeing civilian deaths in the tens of thousands, or at least in the thousands, not the hundreds, as they've been reported. So that seems like an internal inconsistency with the U.S. media narrative. Now, Russia claims, as in the case of the maternity hospital that we heard so much about, that in fact the Ukrainian army and its militias have been embedding themselves in civilian spaces. And with the maternity hospital, their story is that 
all of the patients actually were moved out of the hospital by the Azov Battalion, which is part of the Ukrainian forces. And that, in fact, the Ukrainians were using that hospital as a base of operations, and they've accused the Ukrainians of placing anti-tank missiles and all sorts of other munitions inside civilian buildings. And then when they're attacked by Russia, the Ukrainians report this as an attack on civilians. Now, is that true? I don't know, but I strongly suspect there's something to that story. And again, I point back to the low number of civilian casualties compared to what I would expect if the Russians were just indiscriminately bombing civilian spaces. And the other part of that narrative that doesn't add up for me is Putin's motive. What would his motive be for purposefully targeting civilians in Ukraine? He certainly would have nothing to gain from doing that. Of course, civilians are going to die in any military exercise. So it would be unrealistic to say that the Russians have killed no civilians. You just don't have a war without civilian casualties. But it's a matter of whether you're doing your best to avoid killing civilians, if you just don't care, or if you are purposefully targeting them. And I don't see the advantage that Putin would gain in an exercise like he is running, which all evidence says that he's actually tiptoeing around civilian populations and doing more to avoid civilian casualties than maybe other forces inside Russia would like, including his Duma. And I can't help thinking about Syria, the other country that the U.S. State Department launched a regime change war in, which coincidentally, if you believe that, is the other country that is home to a warm water Russian port, one of only two besides the one in Ukraine that they have on this side of the Eurasian continent. The third of their three warm water ports being in Vladivostok on the Sea of Japan, so giving them access to the Pacific. The only ports they have that don't freeze in the winter on the Mediterranean side are their port in Syria, and their port at Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula. And I've written quite a bit about that ever since 2016, which many of my longtime readers are familiar with. But one of the things that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was accused of by the United States government as a pretext not only for their bombing Syria on three different occasions, under three different presidents, (laughs) President Obama, President Trump and President Biden all found occasion to bomb Syria based on the claims that Assad had launched chemical weapons attacks against his own people. Now, years later, the U.S. government has all but admitted that this never happened. The allegations were called into question immediately. And one of the reasons they were immediately called into question was Assad had no motive for launching these chemical attacks. The first one occurred when he was on the verge of victory against the rebels in his country. And let's not forget, this was a rebellion that was armed and funded by the United States State Department and covert intelligence agencies. The United States eventually got involved in the war. And at one point, there were Pentagon forces fighting the so-called moderate rebels also known as Al-Qaeda in Syria, later ISIS in Syria. 
who were shooting at U.S. soldiers with weapons provided by the CIA. I kid you not. And again, we can never really know for sure who's lying in a war because all sides have a reason to lie or distort the truth or spin the truth. But Assad really had no incentive, no motive to use chemical weapons on any of the occasions that he was accused of doing so. At least one of them, it's very likely that the chemical weapons attack alleged to have been launched by Assad never happened at all. And it's almost certain that the other two attacks were launched by the rebels that the United States government had armed and funded. So bearing that knowledge in mind and knowing that the whole Syria civil war was just another proxy war fought against Russia by the United States using the Syrian citizens as their cannon fodder, I'm very suspicious about the reports that Putin is targeting civilians because he has about as much motive to do so as Assad did in using chemical weapons in Syria. So looking at the other side of this narrative, the U.S. government does have a lot of motive for portraying these events the way that they're portraying them. And as I said on my earlier episode concerning how the empire really runs, getting Ukraine into NATO, into the European Union, and pretty much weaponizing it against Russia has been a long-term project of the State Department that goes all the way back to the beginning of this century. And the first color revolution to overthrow the government of Ukraine run by the State Department and CIA in 2004 when George W. Bush was president. So if you think back of the history of what's gone on in that country, two different color revolutions run under two different presidents 10 years apart, and this ongoing war now in Ukraine, the U.S.'s failure to keep its promise in 1991 to Gorbachev not to admit any countries east of Germany into NATO— Well, I'm seeing a lot of motive there for the U.S. side to distort the facts of what's going on with this invasion in Ukraine. So again, I would just urge everybody to try and root out as much news as you can. There's some sources even here that are not so bad that will give you a less cartoonish view of this conflict. I'd recommend Consortium News, which is one of the first internet news services going back to the 1990s. Also, Revolver has been doing some good reporting on this and linking to some less biased sources. And again, don't assume just because your own government's lying to you that other governments like Russia's aren't lying as well. They probably are about some things. And you've just got to look at as much evidence as you can, including any video evidence that you can find, any circumstantial evidence as well, And don't forget, some video evidence and photographic evidence is faked. I mean, we've seen pictures actually from Syria, believe it or not, portrayed as events that are going on in the Ukraine war. And then in the end, I think you have to just look at the way the media is portraying this and how familiar this feels to the way COVID was portrayed and the way the whole Trump controversy during Trump's presidency and his alleged collusion with Russia in influencing the 2016 election. 
it kind of reminds me of if you have a friend who casually mentions to you that, let's say that uh, you should look into some investment that he's made or, or he recommends, and you might say, well, thanks, I'll take a look at that. Well, if your friend asks you every day, if you've looked into it yet, and tells you every day you really ought to look into it, and why haven't you looked into it already? After a while, a week, two weeks, you're going to start to get suspicious, right? Like You seem to be overly interested in me looking into this investment, and you probably start to suspect that perhaps he has some vested interest or ulterior motive in wanting you to go through with this. And I can't believe that more Americans don't feel the same way about the way the so-called news coverage has been really for the last five or six years. It's just been unrelenting. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. And to preempt all the nasty grams I might get that I'm repeating Trump lies or something, as I've said on many occasions, I didn't vote for Trump in either election. I've actually never voted for Republican or Democrat for president in my whole life. So I'm blameless in all this, is what I like to say. But nevertheless, I was pretty sure early on that this whole Trump collusion narrative was complete nonsense, which it turned out to be. And I'll also say that while I didn't vote for him in the election, the election seems pretty fishy to me. And I think there's some pretty good questions that need answers presented by those who say that the election could possibly have been swayed by mail-in votes, fraudulent voting. I'm not so sure about the machine theory, although I even read those lawsuits and there's some questions in those that I can't come up with a reasonable answer for. I usually try to play devil's advocate and punch holes in any theory that's put forth. But really, the only way to get to the bottom of those is let the best lawsuit get into a courtroom and have a, a defense attorney try to punch holes in the evidence and see if the evidence holds up or not. The people contesting the election never got that chance. And personally, I would have taken Trump contesting the election with a grain of salt the way I do every election that gets contested, because they all do. If it weren't for the media, again, acting like my friend who just will not let up on this investment he wants me to look at, 
all summer long over and over. There's absolutely no basis that mail-in voting is more fraudulent, blah, blah, blah. We all know that there's more opportunity for fraud with mail-in voting. We've got dozens of prominent Democrats, including Barack Obama, on the record saying so. So had they just reported the news the way we were used to people reporting the news, even in a biased way, but not over the top like that, I probably wouldn't have given it much credence. But when they're that adamant, this is what you must believe, and they just won't let up on it, that raises my suspicions. And that goes for the way that the allegations that there were problems with the election were treated afterwards. What I would expect from an NBC News correspondent, even a very liberal one, is to say that Donald Trump's lawyers contend that this, that, and the other thing happened while the election officials say otherwise, and just leave it at that. It's not a news reporter's job to report Donald Trump's false allegations that, okay? News reporters don't make value judgments. They just tell you what happened and allow you to make the value judgment. At least that's the journalism school civics class version of the so-called free press. So the last thing I wanted to touch on in this bizarre, over-the-top Ukraine narrative is the portrayal of President Zelensky, because that has been as cartoonish as the rest of this media narrative. And I thought I might share a few things about the way the media talked about Zelensky before he got elected president, because it's pretty curious, because now he is this rugged hero who is standing up to a dictator, the underdog, the media told quite a different story about him leading up to the 2019 election. Now, remember, at this point, the civil war in Ukraine had been going on for five years following the U.S.-led color revolution to overthrow Viktor Yanukovych. And the incumbent president, Petro Poroshenko, was running as a hardliner against Putin and Russia which, of course, is exactly how the people who put him into power, the United States State Department, wanted him to run. But Zelensky was a different story, and I'm going to read you a few passages from the coverage by the Western media of Zelensky prior to the election in 2019. The first one comes from Foreign Policy magazine, which is put out by the Council on Foreign Relations, pretty much the U.S. empire's think tank. And this article is titled, Ukraine's TV President is Dangerously Pro-Russian. So you can see where they're coming from immediately from the title. And some of the complaints that they have about Zelensky, who, for anyone who doesn't know, had starred in a TV show called Servant of the People, where he played the president. And they complain, first of all, that in this show, most characters speak Russian, as does Zelensky, by the way. Zelensky's a Russian speaker. He can speak Ukrainian, but he usually doesn't. His first language is Russian, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But foreign policy also had a problem that there was no mention in the show and no dealing with what they call Putin's aggression. So they really had a problem and wondered, based on the show, if that reflected Zelensky's positions and political views, if he was going to go in there and be too pro-Russian or, I should say, not anti-Russian enough. And I'll read you a quote from the article. 
which starts out lauding the State Department's puppet, Petro Poroshenko, and it says, throughout his five years in office, Poroshenko has consistently rejected Putin's line and striven to make Ukraine a viable nation and state. In large measure, he has succeeded. Ukraine has a strong army that has fought the Russians and their Donbass supporters to a standstill. The country is increasingly integrated into Western institutions and is expanding its ties to the rest of the world. Poroshenko's administration has adopted a raft of positive political, economic, social, and cultural reforms, and it has effectively left the Russian sphere of influence. By contrast, if servant of the people is any guide, Zelensky may well roll back these achievements and effectively bring Ukraine back into the so-called Russian world. Zelensky's major strength that he has identified with Holobordiko, and I apologize to any Russian or Ukrainian speakers for my pronunciation of that word, is also his major weakness. He has got a few weeks before the next round of voting to make his own mark, but that too would be a problem. There is no hiding the fact that he has no experience in politics. Zelensky's supporters hope that his advisors, especially the self-styled reformers who served under Poroshenko, will make up for his ignorance, but that's unlikely. Their willingness to renounce Poroshenko when the going got tough bodes ill for their future dedication to Zelensky. Zelensky could end up completely on his own or completely dependent on oligarch backers. On his own, he'll fail as a reformer. As a puppet to powerful oligarchs, he would succeed as an anti-reformer. Whatever the outcome, a weak president would be just what Ukraine's corrupt elite and Putin want. So you can see, Foreign Policy magazine is not at all happy about the prospect of a Zelensky presidency. Of course, they don't want to see the puppet they installed, Poroshenko, defeated, and least of all by somebody who might be a little bit moderate on Russia or have some reasonable way to approach the situation. And it turns out that's just how Zelensky campaigned. So here's another report by uh, the unbiased U.S. media. NBC News in February of 2019 runs a story called Comedian Volodymyr Zelensky Leads Polls in Ukraine's Presidential Race. And here's a quote from that article. A Zelensky victory would be Putin's dream scenario, said Alexander Modell, a political science professor at Rutgers University and contributor for Atlantic Council, an American think tank. Putin is hoping for and may be committed to doing everything possible to bring about a Poroshenko defeat. So you could see the same Putin puppet rhetoric that was put out about Trump. They were running the same line against Zelensky before he won the election. So what were some of the policies that the empire didn't like, disliked enough to portray him the way they portrayed Trump? Well, here's a pretty good breakdown of his positions by the Wilson Center, of all places. And I'll link to this on the show notes page, but it says... First, Zelensky has stressed the need to protect national minority languages in addition to maintaining the status of Ukrainian as the state language. This suggests he would be receptive to recognizing the cultural rights of those residents of the Donbass who seek to retain Russian language access to education, material, media outlets, 
printed matter and cultural performances. So this is in response to suggestions that Russian should be totally eliminated as a language within Ukraine to the extent possible, and some cultural attempts to make Russian speakers into second-class citizens. So I'll, I'll go on with the article here. It says that second, Zelensky also indicates that he is against some of the decommunization policies that would impose divisive historical figures on communities that reject them. Thus, the state's policies of commemorating the leaders of the interwar nationalist movement and commanders of the Ukrainian insurgent army would likely not be extended to Donbass. So this is, again, part of that cultural war, at least the way it was perceived by Russian speakers. Third, Zelensky has positioned himself as a strong proponent of a winning hearts and minds strategy for reintegration. He advocates a strong information outreach campaign targeting the occupied areas of the Donbass and explaining how the interests of residents would be better served by the new Ukrainian leadership. He also insists on the need to start paying pensions to Ukrainian citizens in the Donbass who live beyond the line of contact. This would mean at least a partial end to the economic blockade and a recognition of Ukraine's continued obligations to all Ukrainian citizens, irrespective of their political beliefs. Although implementing this policy would probably be difficult, it would also be a powerful goodwill gesture on the part of Kiev. Finally, Zelensky is a resolute proponent of a negotiated solution to the conflict. He has ruled out the possibility of using force to take back Donbass territories and advocates holding direct bilateral negotiations with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, to end the Kremlin's support for separatist armed units in the region. His election may also allow a compromise to be found over the deployment of UN peacekeepers in the region. While Poroshenko insists on their immediate deployment across the entire occupied area, Zelensky suggests that peacekeepers can be deployed sequentially, starting with the line of contact. So I think all of this news coverage, both against Zelensky and this last article that kind of explains his policy positions, makes it pretty clear that Zelensky ran on a much more moderate platform. He campaigned to Russian-speaking Ukrainian citizens, including those in the separatist regions, and was looking to not take a hard line on this, to negotiate with Putin, to not use force against the separatist Ukrainians, and to call off the culture war, for lack of a better term, that the hardliners in Ukraine had launched against all Russian speakers within Ukraine. So one would think that having run that way, he would be a strong proponent of adherence to the Minsk agreements, but at least since President Biden took office, he's had a completely different stance. Now, the Minsk agreements had fallen apart back in 2015, and I should add, not without help from both sides in the conflict and not adhering to the terms. But one would think that Zelensky might be a strong proponent to get back to that agreement and make good on his promise to reach out to the people in the separatist regions. Well, he had that chance last April of 2021, 
but his response to suggestions that representatives of the separatist republics should be involved in talks with Russia over implementing the terms of the Minsk agreements, which would seem consistent with the way he campaigned, while his response at that time was that he had no intention of talking to terrorists. George W. Bush would have been proud. And that's quite a bit different than the message he sent during his campaign, not only to the people in the separatist republics, but also all of the Russian speakers who helped get him elected during the 2019 campaign. And of course, we know that by early 2022 and before the Russian invasion, Zelensky was relentlessly shelling that region pretty much breaking every promise that he made during his 2019 campaign. And ironically, of course, he's now portrayed as a symbol of democracy, while Vladimir Putin, who has very strong support in his own country, is portrayed as a dictator. Now, of course, everything I've said about Zelensky's campaign and the way he got himself elected, what he told the Ukrainian people, including the Russian-speaking population, That's completely down the memory hole. I wanted to bring it back for you to just give you another perspective on this man and this conflict that, of course, you're not getting from the U.S. media. I think I'll leave it there for today. I want to talk about some of the economic ramifications of the sanctions the U.S. is putting on Russia And of course, I'll get into that with Tom Luongo on Wednesday, and I have even more information that I've come across in addition to what I think he's going to bring to us then. So it's going to be a big week. I have another guest on Friday, but depending on who confirms first, I don't know which one it's going to be. So it'll be a surprise, but I will see you back here Wednesday for my interview with Tom Luongo. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.